The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Good morning and really welcome to the program. This is Squawkbox and these are your headlines. Stock slip and crude struggles after China locks down its largest districts in Beijing and Guangzhou after reporting its first COVID deaths in six months. Bob Iger returns to the House of Mouse, replacing Bob Chapek as CEO after only 33 months as Disney looks to regain momentum after a disappointing quarter. Retail earnings and Black Friday sales come into focus as investors look for resilience from the U.S. consumer. While Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic says another 75 to 100 basis points of tightening may be enough to rein in inflation. Cryptocurrencies sink as FTX admits it owes up to its top 50 creditors more than $3 billion as the bankrupt crypto exchange's new CEO scrambles to sell or restructure the rest of the business. And in Egypt, COP27 ends with negotiators failing to strike a deal on greater curbs to uh, greenhouse gases. But countries do agree to a loss and damage fund for poor nations affected by climate change. Clearly, this will not be enough. But it is a much-needed political signal to rebuild broken trust. The voices of those on the front lines of the climate crisis must be heard. So welcome to the program this morning, everybody. And as we kick off the uh, fresh Monday morning squawk box, um, we've got some numbers coming through from Julius Baer. So let's just take a look at uh, what the company is giving us here. It's a, it's a wide ranging statement uh, covering the uh, net, asset, uh, net new assets under management. And um, effectively, it's, a, it's an update on corporate strategy going forward. So the group says, um, thanks to uh, a strong improvement in the July-October period uh, to, clo- uh, to close to 91 basis points gross margin for the first 10 months of the year on track to meet key 2022 profitability targets despite challenging market conditions. The uh, group uh, goes on to say that we have um, uh, we expect to complete our buyback program by the end of February 2023 as planned. Going forward, all CET1 capital ratios meaningfully exceed a BIS CET1 ratio of 14% at the end of the financial year. Uh, Adjusted pre-tax margin marginally below 26 basis points for full year 2021. The adjusted cost income ratio just above 66% here. Full year 2021 was uh, 64%, so slightly higher on the um, cost side than over the previous period. Uh, the group says the cost income ratio and the pre-tax margin targets are well within reach. What, what has been interesting about this bank is the um, half yearly report, the net assets under management actually declined right. on the comparative period. And you know, pe- people have been looking at the turnaround in fortunes uh, for the bank and whether they are on track to hit targets for the year. So sustained recovery in net new money and assets under management, 429 billion here, which is broadly, I think, 
ballpark for where we were at the six months number. Morning, how are you? Uh, okay. Are you good? Not bad for a Monday. We're all a bit Monday, aren't we? All we are a little bit Monday. Let's try and get this going a little bit, really, because I think it's fascinating. <laughs> and I know what you were saying about the half year, and I know there was a bit of disappointment about that. Yeah. But the benchmark of where Julius Baer is, compared with, dare I say it, some of their mates across the road in Zurich, is enormous. It's the biggest golf. It's the golf, I don't know, it's like between us and Bloomberg. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's such a huge golf in quality. Because... Sorry, guys, I'm joking. But, but the fact of the matter is, Julius Baer trades, and as we've talked about this for years, at a massive premium, not only to some of their mates across the road in Zurich, and I'm talking mainly Credit Suisse, and also UBS, to be fair, yeah. but it also trades at a massive premium to anyone else in the sector. Now, I know the shares have suffered a bit this year. I think they're down about 14% year to date. But compared with some of their rivals across the street mm. who have had a, another pummeling this year, mm. but you look at the valuation, it trades on 1.6 times for the price to book here, yeah? 1.6, which is massive. It's up there with the best of the US banks. Uh, and obviously, it's about one, no, get this right, one, two, three, four, five, about five and a half times the valuation of Credit Squish, which trades at 0.28 price to book, which is the best measure, I think, in the banking sector still. And so then I went back to the new Credit Swiss strategy we got late in October. And we'll be done on the Credit Swiss strategy. We got, it's all out now. We've got a bit more coming later. Uh, well, no, we're just waiting for the vote this oh, okay. week. Because so we the vote's the on Wednesday, I think. Oh, is it? Yeah, right, yeah. No, no, you yeah. probably, are you off to Zurich yeah. again? Uh, we'll see. Ooh. We'll see. Oh. <laughs> I guess it depends on the Credit Suisse comms team sorting their act out, really, whether they're brave enough to put someone forward for you. That's oh, it, isn't that. it? Is that it? There is, that, there is that. Are you brave yeah. enough, Credit Suisse comms team, uh -huh. to get Jeff to Zurich? There you go. Chuck that one down. That's a gauntlet. Not a bad trip, is it? Uh, so on the 27th of October, this is my point about Credit Suisse versus mm. Um, mm. Uh, Julius Baer. Mm. Cre uh, Credit Suisse put out a statement saying, as part of this whole um, revamp, almost 80.8% of our capital, uh, wealth management, um, is where they're going to allocate their money. Allocate 80% of their money to wealth management, to Swiss bank, to asset management and markets by 2025. And that just said to me, we just want to be, we just want to be Julius Baer. We're going to be a bit bigger maybe because we're a bigger bank, but we want to be Julius Baer because Julius Baer, the valuation is off the Richter scale compared with some of the others. And, and, and this is a very crowded space is the problem because Let's face it, a little bit less wealth in the world now. Not, same, not the same catalysts and drivers there were three, four years ago before COVID. And everybody wants a slice of that wealth management that the likes of Julius Baer have done very well at. So I get there are tensions mm. at Julius Baer, mm. but you're coming off a, a completely different level. Hello. Hello. I think one of the difficult points here and what investors have to separate out is who fares better in a, a tough environment. And we saw that from mid-year when it was uh, very difficult with the Asian and the Middle East customer deleveraging. This was what they pointed out when they produced their last set of results, that mm. they had such a big dip in the numbers, who can do well in that type of environment? Is it a Julius Baer or is it a UBS in, in that environment as well? And it's not just Credit Suisse uh, trying to get a, a piece of the pie here. I think there are other major players. Yeah, and yeah. we also heard Spot it from uh, the Germans last week about the American might in this part of the world, whether they are losing market share and whether you're going to be left with a whole bunch of American players uh, effectively uh, dominant here in Europe. Certainly in investment banking, but possibly attacking that wealth management side as well. Yeah, I mean, and the key to the wealth management businesses, it, it's great to have increases in net new assets under management, but ultimately what you want is customers to be active and that generates fee income. So the, it, it, I mean, it's, it's wonderful that they are, 
you know, focusing on attracting um, uh, uh, um, new customers who want to park their funds within the banks, but you also want those new customers to want a whole slew of financial products that you can offer them as the organization, yeah. because obviously providing those products generates income for the bank. So, you know, it's all well and good to have a strategy where you think I'm going to de-risk the organization by moving away from the investment bank that hasn't been as competitive as maybe some of the American peers. But even if you're moving into what's perceived to be a, a, a much lower risk area of wealth management, client, strong client relationships and so on and so forth, you still need economic activity. Yeah. Just finally, one point here, client activity uh, starting to normalise from those low levels that we saw back in May, June. So I think that's important that we've had markets, what they bounced over the summer months, a bit more volatility has come back in, but they're still talking about normalisation, that client but activity. There is a juxtaposed contradiction here, isn't there? And this is more of a metaphor for the bigger market. Okay, lots of big words. Um, but, but, but you get these statements from banks, and I'm not criticising any individual bank. It's that, oh, we want a bit more volatility. You're absolutely right. They want a bit of activity. Want a bit. Oh, but we can't have too much volatility because that means the clients don't want to get involved as well. So they want this kind of Goldilocks-esque level of volatility where there's a bit going on but not too much as well. And you can't always have it that way. Oh, we're bemoaning the fact there's not enough movement and volatility market. Oh, there's too much in the market as well. Get a grip, guys. Uh, so that was the interim management statement for the uh, first 10 months of the year. It's an interesting time. 10 to, months. For, no, 10 months. I, didn't even know it was I mean, normally we do the quarters, nine, don't we? So we're nine. 12. But that was 10 months. Why 10? I don't know. Um, let's move on. Uh, Beijing's biggest district has ordered people to stay at home today with businesses closed and schools switching to online classes. This is the country reports an uptick in cases and its first COVID deaths in six months. Guangzhou has also announced a five-day lockdown in its most populous district as cases continue to rise. Well, the Hong Kong chief executive John Lee has tested positive for COVID after returning from the APEC summit in Bangkok, the government spokesman confirmed that Lee is isolating and working from home. Be interesting to know then whether everybody in the block that he lives in will also have to be tested because that's one of the policies in Hong Kong. As, uh, um, of course, Hong Kong continues to broadly abide by many of the restrictions uh, that come down from Beijing. So in terms of the market performance, the Nikkei is modestly uh, higher at this point. But as you can see, the broader Chinese markets and South Korea uh, on a uh, weak footing this hour. In terms of the oil prices, let's have a look. Um, WTI crude and Brent continue to lose momentum here, I think, as the oil market resets to the idea of a lower growth trajectory for, for the planet going forward. Um, let's pick up then on some of these issues. Uh, Sam joins us. Uh, and Sam, you know, we, we often talk about how China sets the cost of money or the price of money. Uh, sorry, America sets the price of money, but China determines the global growth rate. And it would appear that with these um, continued cases and new deaths being reported, um, we are going to see very slow Chinese growth at this stage. 
Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, I mean, these cases very much on the rise certainly doesn't sit well ahead of the winter months, which we know that Beijing is already worried about. We're seeing cases now over 27,000 infections reported this morning. So uh, very much uh, the highest number we've seen since that lockdown over in Shanghai. As you said, three deaths reported the first time we've heard uh, about some deaths out of China, COVID-related uh, also since that Shanghai lockdown. So very much a concern at the moment. And investors remaining very cautious as it has been certainly dashing hopes of a, a speedy recovery, of course, which certainly fueled that rally at the start of last week. But that sentiment definitely seems to be fading out now. And it's not only having an impact, certainly on the, the Chinese markets, but uh, broader Asia equities today. Uh, we've also seen uh, some pressure on the, the currency as well. We've seen the yuan uh, weakening to a 10-day low against uh, the US dollar today. Uh, we've also seen it playing out, as you mentioned, in the commodity space with oil prices pulling back certainly on worries about the demand story over in China and the iron ore futures also uh, down today off the back of a three-week rally really as I said fueled by hopes that we could see some of those COVID curbs being eased. Now you mentioned the situation over in Beijing Uh, we have got the uh, busiest district of Chaoyang which of course is home to around three and a half million people being told to stay home today businesses have been shut there we're seeing that schools have gone online Line And this is very important, of course, because this area uh, is uh, home to a lot of foreign embassies and, of course, a lot of big shopping malls not uh, good, of course, for the services sector. Consumption, as we've seen those retail sales uh, falling uh, in the month of October as well. Uh, there isn't a blanket lockdown at this stage. It does seem they're trying to avoid any kind of Shanghai-style lockdown, uh, certainly given the criticism we've heard of late about this sort of one-size-fits-all approach, but also uh, certainly in acknowledgement now of the mounting economic toll that these lockdowns are having. Uh, But at the same time, as you mentioned, we've also got the city of Guangzhou, which is a major manufacturing hub and has been dubbed the world's factory floor, uh, putting one of its uh, busiest and biggest districts or also into a five-day lockdown, uh, which starts from today. Uh, So it does very much seem that China is sort of torn at the moment between uh, trying to ease some of these uh, COVID restrictions uh, against the backdrop of rising infections that they are in a bit of a dilemma where there are certainly aspects of trying to live with the virus uh, but cases are very much going up and uh, there has been uh, some suggestion uh, that uh, perhaps we won't see any sort of gradual reopening uh, until at least March or April but I suppose as I said this doesn't set up a very good picture for the winter months we'll have to see how China gets through this one guys back to you. Bob Iger has returned as the CEO of Disney with his successor Bob Chappick stepping down after just 33 months in charge. Disney's board said Iger will serve as CEO for two years and has been tasked with renewing growth at the entertainment giant. Iger acknowledged the unexpected nature of his return, describing amazement at his appointment in an email to employees obtained by CNBC. Chapek has frequently come under fire since taking over as CEO in February 2020. Heavy losses at the firm's streaming division, his stance over gay rights in Florida and a reported rift between him and Iger have all weighed on morale at the company and its share price, which has fallen 40 percent this year. 
uh, the speed of change uh, worthy of a Disney flick. I know they like their heroes and villains, but mm. uh, I can always see as a hero for the business after 15 successful years and back in charge. Uh, makes you wonder whether there's a second part to his book as well, The Ride of a Lifetime, The Second yeah. Ride of a Lifetime. I mean, this is just fascinating, isn't it, that they've brought Iger back in and so swiftly, it seems, just a couple of days ago, initiating conversations and now Iger's back in charge. I thought um, Chapek had just signed a new multi-year contract. He had, yes, uh, through 2024. Right. Um, so that implies that this was... Um, uh, this decision was taken uh, over a very short time frame. Handbrake term. So you, why? What is this about? I mean, we know that um, the streaming revenues were not great, and it does appear that they are struggling um, with some of the challenges um, that are appearing on, on that front. But, but why the handbrake turn at this stage? One view, I mean, if you think about the stock, it's been treated in some ways like a tech stock. Uh, they wanted that. They went after the streaming business. You get treated like a, a tech stock if you're trying to position yourself up against the likes of Netflix. But the market has changed, hasn't it? If you think about the sort of losses it's sustaining now, 1.47 billion. Uh, that uh, was in the recent quarter twice a year earlier. So we're not seeing that type of environment tolerated anymore by investors. And you've got a whole bunch of activists lining up tree, and which is a very aggressive one, also doesn't think, uh, is not thought to have wanted Mr. Iger back in charge either. So I think there's just acrimony about where they're going from here, uh, whether they can sustain the losses there and whether the parks business, other big uh, revenue producing areas of the Disney empire should be sustaining such wide losses now when the market's changed. It's, it's a brilliant company in many ways though. Let's be honest about it. The franchises they've got are fantastic, whether it be Marvel, the Disney one itself as well, um, the Star Wars stuff as well. I mean, uh, Disney isn't like one of these other streamers, dare I say it, that's come along that you wonder about their their existence. There's nothing existential about the threats to Disney. It is industry-wide. Look, let's be brutally honest about it. Whether you're CNN, whether you are Comcast, our own parent, whether you are Disney, you are looking at what your business looks like going forward as well. And it is very tricky to negotiate. But we, one thing about Disney compared to some names out there, and say, you know, we could say the same about Comcast, well, you know they're going to be around in one way, shape or form in, in a very large way. Uh, I think the problems with Disney, I, as you, I think you know it is, it's like, there's a massive flow of cash outwards at the moment from streaming. Streaming is here for good, and then someone's got to work out how that conundrum solves itself, i.e. turning streaming to cash flow positive, uh, and indeed make it, because no one's going to not stream going forward at Disney. It's, it's a major part of it, and the product offering is great, but there's a lot of other great offerings out there as well. Uh, and isn't that the problem? There are just too many players in this market at the there moment. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing is this, this was a COVID story, wasn't it, largely? Yeah. That, uh, as you're pointing out, you know, as we, as we came through the last two or three years, the theme parks were locked down, the, the cruises were locked down, all of the traditional Disney offerings suffered as a result of that. And you could have looked at it and just said, you know what, it's going to be rough for a couple of years while we get through this. Or you could have looked at it and you could have said, well, the people that are benefiting from this are the digital streaming businesses. Why don't we pivot to that space? And it's a bit like the Greg Rosetsky story about, you know, why was he such a great ice hockey player? And he always said, the other people skated to the puck. I, I skated tennis player. I, I, I skated to where the puck was going to be. And that's the point, isn't it? Have they skated to the puck 
and forgotten to skate to where the puck is going to be because that chart that we just popped up that showed Amazon, Netflix and Disney effectively showed all of them are struggling at the moment with all this competition and the high cost of product. Disney has just put itself into that camp as well here and you, you do wonder whether it was the right strategy to go all in on digital, given how expensive it is to be a player in that game. In a different environment, I mean, the numbers would probably be well rewarded. You think about the subscriber numbers when, that it's got across the platform, what, 235 million in a let's grow uh, at all costs and have a, a big number of subscribers. Sorry, this would have been Karen, sorry, we can't concentrate. <laughs> What, what happened to both of you? Jeff was trying to do an ice hockey analogy, yeah, for our North American friends. About the puck. But he ended up... To, no, no, puck's fine. No, I'm malapropising. Malapropising. You basically started talking about a very yeah. Greg solid but unspectacular tennis player of the past yeah. rather than a very rather good ice Wayne hockey player. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think no. we all understand the, no, uh, I didn't have a the point. So Greg Rosetsky always went with the tennis ball was about mm. 10 minutes earlier. <laughs> <laughs> no, anyway, you mean yes, Wayne you Gretzky, yeah? Wayne Gretzky, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have a yeah, clue. Yeah. I genuinely didn't know. All right. I thought mind. there was some other ice hockey It's early. Out. It's early, let's face it. Um, but just it, one more thing. I think you got yeah. the point, right? Right. Yeah. You were saying, <clears throat> No, no, no. I, I don't want to <laughs> take away from your, your hockey slash tennis moment now. <laughs> but uh, Apparently, Wayne Gretzky is pretty good at tennis as well. My point was that you've got a business here that's uh, built up a huge amount of subscribers. And that would have been enough in a different type of environment. And perhaps it tells you just how brutal the focus is on the stock market action over at Disney. That performance is what's key here. Um, I just looked at valuation as well. And it's not bad compared, oh, look, compared with some of the illustrious tech names out there that have always traded at silly prices. <laughs> it trades at less on the forward. But actually, compared to a lot of the other big media players, he's still at it. Um, it uh, is trading pretty well on 21 times forward. Anyway. What the puck? Let's move on. Uh, coming up on the show, Collapse Crypto, that's brave, wasn't it? Yeah. Collapse Crypto Exchange, FTX, reveals it owes more than $3 billion to its top 50 creditors. We'll have more after the break. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Uh, the Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic says he's ready to move away from 75 basis point hike starting at next month's meeting. Bostic added that he expects a further 75 to 100 basis points of tightening, I think in total, to be sufficient to tackle price pressures. His comments come after recent inflation prints have come in lower than expected. I mean, we're talking decimals here, ladies and gentlemen, but anyway, they have been lower. Uh, fueling hopes that inflation has peaked. Let's take a quick look at the markets for you. I'll just get up and saunter over. Um, it was a, well, an unspectacular session in many ways on Friday. Uh, the Nasdaq having uh, a rare day without volatility. But for the week, and I think that's probably more intuitive of what we did for the week, well, for the week, the Dow did absolutely nothing, literally to the second decimal. It was flat, uh, as indeed, well, the S&P was down seven-tenths of 1%. The Nasdaq did lose ground on the week, down 1.6% as well. We'll move on to Treasuries as well. In terms of the data, well, we've just had Bostic speaking. 
I think perhaps the most exciting thing for all of you this week will be the FOMC minutes on Wednesday. Big data dump on Wednesday ahead of the Thanksgiving holiday. Um, what have we got? We've got mortgage applications on Wednesday, jobless claims, uh, PMIs, uh, University of Michigan's consumer sentiment, new home sales, plus those minutes as well. Then you've got the holiday on Thursday. Uh, and then Friday, well, it depends really. I don't know if everyone's just going to be clicking away doing their Black Friday deals or whether they're actually going to be at their desks as well. But it's a quieter end to the week. So shortened holiday week is what you need to know. If you want to get your big trades done, it's the first three days of the week, then you're going to be doing it. Dollar crosses look like this. The dollar index rallied seven tenths of 1% last week. Euro dollar trading 102.83. The pound trading at parity. Nope, still not parity. There you go. <laughs> Sorry, I get bored with that joke, don't we? I've only done it for four weeks now. Uh, 118.36 is where it's currently trading as well. Dollar yuan uh, up five tenths of a percent. European opening calls, I think they're a bit downbeat actually. I was quite surprised at that actually. I didn't see anything particular uh, from the US late session that meant we were going to be moving aggressively in one way or other, but we're a little bit negative with the DAX called down 59 uh, points, as indeed is the FTSE MIB. Um, opening call. I've done that. <laughs> done that one. Right, crypto. Uh, I came in this morning. I saw there was a 15 handle on on the uh, Bitcoin. Has it got 15? No, it's just rallied now up to 16,160. And like, I don't know about you two, but I still just can't stop reading about crypto and FTX and all the, the stuff that's been going on there. And uh, there's nothing new that seems to be coming out over the weekend, but it's still just this amazing slow motion car crash, wasn't it, that was going on at FTX. Yeah, I'm, I, we're, we're getting some numbers, some hard numbers oh, okay. crystallized now, aren't we? FTX apparently owes more than $3 billion to its top 50 creditors, according to a court filing from the collapsed crypto exchange. Around $1.45 billion is owed to the company's top 10 creditors. With two customers owed over $200 million each, FTX did not name the creditors, although I think most of the names are already out there. And I think some of the real surprises come when you, when you think about a comp, uh, an outfit like Tam Tamasek, which is the Singaporean government investment fund, which apparently lost $275 million after six months of due diligence into the business. James McSharry joins us, senior consultant uh, for business and financial services practice at Frost and Sullivan. Uh, and James, that, that's what's so astonishing here, that the list of top 40 investors uh, could be a roll call of the great and good in the investment community who apparently did their due diligence but still didn't see what was going on inside FTX. How could that be possible? Yeah, good morning. Um, I think, we, I mean, you can say that they, they, they did their due diligence. I'm, I'm not so sure, to be honest, um, if, that, if that can possibly be true. If you um, think about all of the, the big names that we've seen pouring loads of money into the, into the space, it's all on the back of big promises, 8 to 15% returns um, for free almost, it seems like. And I think people got carried away. Um, it looked like the, the sea was rising and all the boats would rise with it. Um, but I think people got carried away with the, with the promises um, and the commotion. And I, I don't believe that the due diligence was done properly, because um, if it was, some of this stuff would have been foreseen, I think. So we've talked to a lot of people from the industry since the news first started to break. And there is clearly a very active desire to distance the rest of the industry from FTX and to describe FTX 
as a single bad apple in the barrel. Um, I mean, to what extent is that credible and believable at this stage? Should we expect there to be more problems emerging from this industry? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, firstly, it's, it's clear that the tech itself has not failed once. We know that the tech is, is fundamentally sound. Um, and so we can be kind of confident on that front. The question is then, these other big big exchanges, are they doing the same things, this basic, basically fractional reserve banking? Are they doing that on the side or are they being a bit more kind of um, conservative with their, with their um, internal processes? So I guess from that point of view, we don't actually know what people are doing yet. Um, so yeah, wait and see, basically. I think I'm nervous that, that we'll see other exchanges um, with similar issues. Just to that point, James, I mean, there's been a whole sort of deep dive from many uh, just watching this space and saying, look, you've got a centralised exchange here, you've got centralised finance. This is as old as the hills as you take a look at the business model. Even though we're talking about crypto, it's effectively an old business model that's been rolled into the crypto world. If that is the case, where else do we need to look at the same examples taking place? And do we need to be as concerned about those areas as well? I think let's start with the other the other centralized exchanges. Um, we don't have the the level of transparency that we would expect of a traditional financial institution, um, and that's probably because the regulation just hasn't developed at a, a sufficiently kind of rapid pace. Um, so I think we start there and we start to demand for greater transparency from from those guys um, before we look any further. Really, and I think there's an interesting stuff that happened last week. Uh, a sort of um, record number of people have removed their their coins off of centralized exchanges and prefer just to hold them themselves in in USBs and not offline storage devices. So I think generally that the floor might have fallen from out, from underneath the, the the centralized exchange platforms, um, which is a big big worry. And I think we'll see. I think we'll see further um, FTX disasters elsewhere. Just to that point about what it does to business models, because I know a lot of the big uh, crypto firms were trying to encourage people to store money on deposit. That was one way that they had uh, engineered their, their revenue and business models, so that we had money just sitting on these exchanges, that even if they were offering bigger yields, that they had the big deposits to work with. If that changes and people are putting their money elsewhere now, away from these uh, big exchanges, does that fundamentally change the crypto businesses that we know at this point? Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I, I kind of hope it does. I think there's so much interesting use cases, so many interesting use cases to point to in terms of what, what DLT can do. Um, and speculation on crypto exchanges is, is is one of many things, and it takes a large proportion of the limelight. But once we sort of, I think once we sort of mature and move away from speculation in, in various uh, crypto coins, we might actually see unlocking some of the actual real world economic potential of some of this technology. So moving away from some of these business models that we're seeing at the moment, you know, um, with, with the crypto exchange, et cetera, possibly a good thing. I still don't understand what role price has in crypto as well. I, I look a lot at the crypto community online and they, they, they're, they're resembling a cult now, a lot of these people. And they're saying, we're really glad that loads of people have got out. We're really glad the price has come down. It means it's just left to us who are forever going to hold crypto. I see polls online say, uh, like or retweet if you're never going to sell crypto. That's just gone into such weird territory, James, as far as I'm concerned, because you have trades, you have positions, and then you run them for a certain amount of time, or you have them for a longer period if you think, actually, this is a good, sustainable business. Hasn't the cult of crypto just gone a bit bonkers? 
I think you're completely right. I think we've completely detached from the fundamentals. Um, and it's almost a sort of new form of cognitive dissonance, which you've seen repeat itself numerous times in the past. Um, but once we, but now that the, the, the cult has detached itself from the economic reality of, of value add, that there just doesn't seem to be any relationship between between the real world and the, and the, and the prices that we're seeing in some of these crypto coins. So I think it, it has got a bit mad, and um, I think FTX might might wake up a number of investors to that fact. Um, so in order to try, you know try and pull out the, the silver lining here, I think that that could be it. I'm going to ask a, a very basic question, which I've been asking for ever since I've heard of crypto. What is Bitcoin worth? Do we have a clue what it's actually worth? I think that's going to depend on where the regulatory environment settles and how we can kind of prosper it, or grow the space itself. I don't think personally, and I'm I'm not a crypto fan to be to be honest with you in terms of the, the, the kind of the non-regulated coins. I think it's personally I see no value in 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 things like Bitcoin until we have systems in place which can. Um, back up the value in terms of real world things. So yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fanboy, um, it's fair to say, but, but I, I, I see very little value until, until the, the space itself matures. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.